Digital Gonzo, episode 154, recorded Wednesday the 30th of October, 2013, Iron Man 3. Got a lot of apologies to make. Nothing's been the same since New York. They experience things, and then they're over. I can't sleep. And when I do, I have nightmares. Honestly, there's a hundred people who want to kill me. I hope I can protect the one thing I can't live without. Avengers Reassemble After the deeply satisfying climax of Phase 1, we are back to kick off Phase 2, starting here with this year's Iron Man 3, followed next week by Thor The Dark World, out in theatres now. Next year we'll be back with Captain America The Winter Soldier and then Guardians of the Galaxy, and finally in 2015, Avengers Age of Ultron. Back from Phase 1, I am joined tonight by members of my original team, Muscular deity, Neil Taylor of Gameburst. You, bring me a horse. <laughs> Raging scientist Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Puny god. And Jerome McIntosh, agent of Gameburst. Honestly, guys, I hate working here. These people are so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, And you did not hear that wrong, just in case you you didn't hear it on Sunday. Jerome, now, go for it. I am now part of the Gangburst crew. Round of applause. Whee! One of us, one of us. Now, we have had a deluge of opinion on this movie, which has been rather divisive. On the one side, you have viewers angry over misuse of the Mandarin character and lack of any actual Iron Man. And on the other, you have angry viewers who noted dozens of plot holes and character inconsistencies. How are we going to come to a consensus? With a gonzo dynamic analysis, that's how we'll be alternating essay material with roundtable chat segments. So I'm going to start off uh, by just sort of going round the table and asking folks uh, what they thought of this when they saw it in cinemas months ago. Cast your minds back. Uh, shall we start with Neil? Yo, listen up. Here's the story about a little guy that lives in a blue world. And all day and all night and everything he sees is just blue like him. Inside and outside blew his house with a blue little window and a blue corvette And everything is blue for him and himself and everybody around Cause he ain't got 
nobody to listen. I didn't like it. I, I really like didn't it. like it. At okay, all. elaborate. Basically, count these as uh, spotlight to getting stuff off your chest first. Okay, I probably am one of the few people that actually... See, I've, got, I've got stuff to get off my chest about Tony getting stuff off his chest. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, carry on there. <laughs> That's very metaphysical of you. I, uh, I like what they did with the Mandarin stuff. I actually liked that. I thought that was different and clever. But it, this film sort of proved that the biggest sort of problem with the Iron Man films is the villains and they're all a bit pants compared to Tony these films seem to really get by on Robert Downey Jr's wit and his dialogue being Tony Stark and that's what this film's really got going for it the, the dialogue's really good mm. the first half of the film is a really solid film but after the sort of the attack on the on his house mm. it slowly sort of sinks and gets a bit mired and a bit slow and a bit mired dull and a bit like oh get on with it kind of deal so really, that's kind of just the first third, because the middle third would be all of the stuff in uh, uh, where was it, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the last third is almost entirely action. Yeah, it feels slightly unbalanced, really. I can appreciate what they were going for. This one does feel like they were going to try and do a bit more of a character piece on Tony, and they had some good ideas. I just don't think the follow through in the translation to the big screen worked. I liked it more than Neil, but I kind of agree with some of his problems with the film. I think there are a lot of great components. There are great individual pieces in Iron Man 3, but I don't think they kind of come together as a great whole. I I think it's a good movie, and I think if it focused on all these great ideas and just focused like if it just focused on the post-traumatic stress element of Tony's journey rather than going into extremis and stuff like that I think it would have been a much better movie um, but as it is I think the dialogue's really good um, up there with the first movie I think um, I think the especially between uh, Pepper and Tony um, so but it does all the things that Iron Man films have done right right from the first movie. I think my problem is is you know like Neil said the villain's not really that interesting. I I'm one of the, like with Neil I'm one of the few people who think the twist with the Mandarin was actually really clever. I don't think the Mandarin is a particularly great character to start with. So to have it be this like comical kind of like Oh, he's just an actor pretending to be Osama Bin Laden this whole time uh, was a really good trick uh, to play on the audience. Um, but apart from that, if you're going to do something like that, have the real villain be this much bigger deal, much more intimidating. But it, he kind of fell flat for me. Um, yeah, and just Extremis was just really badly explained. Um, it, it like visually it was really interesting I think the visual effects in this film are great and that fight sequence at the end with multiple armors is really well choreographed um, but yeah I just I left the movie thinking the first film's still my favourite uh, I actually quite enjoyed it to be honest um, I, I like the fact that they kept they did well they didn't completely focus on it they did talk about uh, Tony's post-traumatic stress disorder They, I like the fact that um, the whole concept of having um, 
an organization create a terrorist. I like the whole concept behind it, even though it wasn't exactly executed the best. I will agree with you. I the the actual villains weren't all that, and like the extremist soldiers were a bit, you know, one note. I enjoyed the fact they brought AIM into the movie yeah. universe in quite an interesting way, saying it started off as a theme tank sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, obviously, the actual extremist soldiers and who uh, crap, I forgot his name. Killian? Killian? Uh, Diedrich Killian. Um, he was a bit too over the top once his, think his plan has been revealed. Does the usual you know, I'm a villain, ha ha ha, sort of thing. So he had did... monologues? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I also I also did enjoy the moment that where Tony Stark was he could he couldn't use the suit, he was stuck. He he no longer could rely on it, he has to use his mind to yeah. build those gadgets to invade the mansion and also the little moments with the kid yeah. where he freaks out to be honest all in all I quite enjoy it but obviously the first one's the best Iron Man 3 did a better job of being a part of the larger Marvel Universe than Iron Man 2 did mm. because Iron Man 2 it felt like they were going oh cameo oh do you see this thing this is going to be relevant later on oh look at this oh look at that whereas Iron Man 3 was a much more organic and natural about it oh yeah that thing happened in New York of course you already know this so yeah I think it's much better at being a part of this larger web than the previous attempts of doing that have rather than an expanded ten dollar trailer for the avengers yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you know the little bit at the end kind of funny you know yeah, that, that, that was it. it explains why he uh went uh, he suddenly switches to narrating it in first person which is a hangover from kiss kiss bang bang i say he because he's basically down a junior in both well the, the fact that it's set around Christmas, Christmas as well yeah. is a hangover <laughs> from that film as well. I could be, isn't the original Lethal Weapon set around Christmas as well? Yep. Dude's obsessed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a running joke. He loves Christmas. Yeah, he certainly does. Well, he likes messing things up on Christmas, so does he hate Christmas? Yeah. He's kind of anti-Christmas. Okay, right, so let's do some essay material here. I have from Travis DeSantis... Uh, a few words on Iron Man 2 since we were talking about it and just because um, this was so much fun that I figured I wanted to read it somewhere and it was most relevant here he actually placed it originally as a comment uh, underneath the podcast on Gonzo Planet had a sudden brainwave while listening to your podcast review Iron Man 2 could be improved significantly by removing one character anybody? I mean take your pick from any of the characters in Iron Man 2 apart from Tony uh, Rockwell? Yeah, Hammer. Justin Hammer. Yeah. He's completely superfluous to the story, presented as a bumbling Tony Stark light when the movie should have focused on Ivan Vanko as the grim Tony Stark dark. 
Cliff's Notes version, Hammer Industries still gets a mention in taking over the government weapons manufacturing contract that Stark dropped, but instead of Justin masterminding Vanco's employment, it's Senator Stern, Gary Shandling. As head of the committee overseeing the contract, Stern has Vanco pressed into service to get them up to speed with Stark, but he plays it as the obfuscating bureaucrat covering his own ass. Now, without Justin in the way, Rhodey can have more scenes as the guy who is morally disgusted that a violent criminal has been enlisted to work on his war machine suit, but has to follow orders. Natasha can have more scenes showing her spy skills to ferret out Vanko's whereabouts, also illustrating that S.H.I.E.L.D. is a separate entity from the U.S. government, which otherwise doesn't become clear until Avengers. As an aside, the climax should have been less about Vanko in the suit of his own and more about Vanko wanting to hurt Stark the way he has been. He's already proved to the world that Stark is personally vulnerable. Now Vanko will take away Stark's loved ones. While his drones attack the expo, Vanko slips in and abducts Pepper. He drags her into the industrial bowels of the complex, revealing the whole place has been rigged for demolition instead of an armoured brawl stopping Vanko is about Tony and Rhodey working together to outmaneuver him perhaps even out of the suits while Jarvis operates them to disable the explosives yeah absolutely yeah that sounds more interesting get that guy a script writing contract immediately Travis has another essay on Iron Man 3 coming up soon and just to uh, expand on that essay, I think they did try to learn some of those lessons with this film because you have yeah. several um, action sequences where it is about Tony using his head more than the sheer power of his suit. Mm. Um, the sequence that I thought was particularly memorable was the one where he's strapped uh, to a... Was it a bed? Just like the... Yeah, the, it's uh, the, the frame, frame of a of bed. A bed yeah. yeah, and he's just waiting for the individual pieces of his armor to come to him. I thought that was really well choreographed yeah. because all the way through it, Tony could die at any second, <laughs> and it's just him slowly, slowly becoming more and more powerful. And I thought that was a clever way of having an action sequence where he's not God, like he was at the end of uh, Iron Man Two. Mm. Glenn Watts on Tony Stark. It's not an Iron Man film, really. It's a Tony Stark film. This is the part of the movie universe where they start to take their version of Stark away from the version as currently written in the comics. Tony has been faced with a world that now contains gods and aliens. For a normal, albeit highly intelligent, man, this is a lot to take in. Movie Tony struggles with it because he has this romantic attachment to Pepper. He can see now what he might lose if he gets himself killed going off doing the hero thing. Comic Tony builds a spacesuit and goes off to join the Guardians of the Galaxy, leaving Pepper behind. At the end of this film, we have a Tony who is happy to build suits for someone else to fly. He doesn't feel he can take that risk of putting everything he loves in danger anymore, and this conveniently allows them to reduce his screen time in the next round of movies. I liked it, but I haven't watched it again since I first saw it, and I've not rushed out to get it on Blu-ray, so I think I probably like it the least of the three. When a terrorist mastermind kidnaps the president and brings a country to its knees, there's only one Marvel franchise that Disney can afford to call. I wish. Actually, just this guy. No, really. Just the guy. Not even the suit. Tony Stark is regular man in Iron Man 3. Prepare for an Iron Man movie with hardly any Iron Man in it. And no ACDC either. Suit up with billionaire Tony Stark as he doesn't suit up in a summer blockbuster that for no reason at all takes place on Christmas and see him like you've never wanted to see him before. Insecure. I'm a piping hot mess. Anxious. Check the heart, check the, check the, is it the brain? And paralyzed with fear. <sighs> oh God, what am I going to do? 
with regular man sidelined by the whispers of children. It's up to his latest creation to save the day, Remote Control Man. This is a new level of lame. You've seen the Iron Man armor hold its own against Thor, the God of Thunder. Now, after dozens of upgrades, it runs out of batteries. I need to sleep out, son. Constantly malfunctions, falls apart, falls apart again, falls apart again, falls apart again. Whatever. And takes its sweet time to assemble. That. Five, four, three, come on! Two, five. Seriously, the Avengers assembled faster than this. Tony and his crappy suits must pull together to face his greatest foe since alcoholism. The Mandarin. You'll never see me coming. In a timely update of the character, Osama bin Kingsley plays the brilliant terrorist who manipulates the entire country into doing his bidding. My name's Trevor. Trevor Slattery. Wait, what? I'm an actor. The Mandarin. See, it's not real. No, you can't do that. They were doing such a good job, then they turned him into a punchline? This is Iron Man's arch-f***ing nemesis. This isn't just ignoring the comics. This is dropping their pants and wiping their butt with them. What bad guy did they even replace him with? I am the Mandarin! Oh, come on! Instead, we get Aldrich Killian, an ex-nerd out for revenge after Tony skipped a meeting one time, and his nameless henchman with a confusing grab bag of firepowers, like glowing, getting hot, exploding, super strength, regrowing limbs, flame-proof clothes, and shooting fire out of their mouths? They really just made it up as they went along, huh? Next up, we have Alex Spencer, also known as Molomar on the forums, talking about the Mandarin. Imagine you're sitting in the theater watching The Dark Knight for the first time. It's been going brilliantly, and Heath Ledger's Joker has blown you away. Now imagine that at the end of the movie, it was all revealed that the Joker was never actually the Joker. He was just some actor hired by the Penguin who was just some guy Bruce upset in a business deal earlier in his life. I can imagine a lot of people, like me, would be upset about this revelation. They'd take an amazing character with a unique betrayal and make it false the entire time. There was never a Joker, it was just a fake. This is how Iron Man 3 handled the Mandarin. In the Iron Man franchise, Tony has mostly been in his comfort zone. At the end of Iron Man, he faced off against Warmonger, a product made of technology, but Tony is simply better at that stuff, so he comes out on top. Iron Man 2 comes in with another villain who wants to use Tony's own game against him, and loses because of it. Avengers finally knocked Tony for a loop because it put him against things he never thought of before. Suddenly, there were beings from another planet, gods, and aliens. Tony's life would never be the same because of this. When the villain for Iron Man 3 was first announced to be Mandarin, I was pretty excited. Tony would once again be put up against something he has no idea about. A villain whose entire power revolves around magic. Yes, technically it's not magic, but alien technology. Tony wouldn't know about this, though. And Mandarin certainly wouldn't tell him. It'd still be something completely alien to him. A force he's never been up against before. He would be pushed to his limits to think outside of the box to defeat this man who could easily go toe-to-toe with him in any of his armors. Combined with the Mandarin's code of honor, his brilliant mind, incredible skill, and brutal tactics, Tony would be put on the run. The Mandarin would have no problem taking Tony's loved ones and using them against him. Instead, the movie decided to take the highly Chinese-themed Mandarin and go with a Middle Eastern one. 
I'd be okay with this, but then they went even further than that. They decided to make him completely fake. Instead, it's just some guy who Tony skipped out on a meeting once, and that's the true Mandarin. That's right. Now, Tony Stark's arch enemy is just some scientist and businessman pissed off because Tony didn't show up for an appointment once. I'm sure he had a troubled life, but we didn't really see that. He just suddenly kind of turns into this evil asshole. It's not explained, it just kind of happens. Another aspect that seems to be interesting in the trailers, but was completely tossed, was that the Mandarin was supposed to be this great idealist. He looked at our culture like it was something corrupt and wanted to replace it with his superior ideology. But that was all simply a cover-up because Aldrich Killian couldn't keep track of his tap subjects who kept exploding. The movie took a villain with a lot of history behind it and just tossed it out of the window. Just to make a twist midway through the movie. The Avengers series will probably never get a true Mandarin now because it doesn't apparently exist in this universe. They set up something that could have been amazing with Tony figuring out how to stop this, this foe who he doesn't even understand, but no. No, they don't. They just throw him up against this other scientist who Tony beats with more science, and that's it. In fact, Tony doesn't even beat him. Pepper does. This is the Mandarin of Iron Man 3. This is Iron Man 3's legacy. Iron Man 3. Just Who is the Mandarin? By Name Chabity. When the Mandarin was revealed to be, spoiler alert, not, in fact, the cold-hearted terrorist hell-bent on tearing down America, fans of the comics were outraged, especially when what we got, instead, was a sniveling, idiotic Brit, addicted to drugs, and no threat to Tony Stark whatsoever. The question is, why were they upset? After all, the Mandarin in the comics is a Chinese warlord with uber-powerful rings that could really put up a fight against Tony's suits of armor. Sure, the Mandarin of TV land wore ten rings on his fingers, but they never really were set up as a weapon, so right away this classic villain isn't a perfect adaptation. Some might say that he was menacing enough without the laser rings, and I can agree with that. The trailers promised us a powerful man, with unnerving ideas, working behind the scenes. To find out that he was just an actor playing a role was a huge rug pulled out from under our feet. But isn't that what it was supposed to be? The movie wanted us to fear this villain just as much as the movie wanted to surprise us. The best-slash-worst part is the villain was still out there. Killian was, in fact, the villain all along. And if you think about the film with Killian as the bad guy and not a movie where you were cheated out of a villain, you could see how great a plan he really had. He hid behind a face. He made a target. He got the government off his scent. He created a villain and put everything that the public would fear into the character. Like I've already said, the Mandarin is supposed to be a powerful man with unnerving ideas working behind the scenes. And that's Killian, through and through. Killian is the Mandarin, in more brilliant and menacing ways than Trevor Slattery ever was. And that makes him the best villain out of the entire trilogy. He fooled us so well, we still think Trevor's the bad guy. Now, if only he was actually beaten by Tony instead of Pepper. But I think we've now got to the point where um, I don't think you can have anyone else be Tony Stark. And if they do uh, choose to continue the Iron Man story, whether it be in Age of Ultron or in Iron Man 4, you've got to wonder whether or not they'll pick up the threads of what's gone on in 3 or not. Because yeah. they are doing something. Because I don't know if you guys caught a news article uh, about last week sometime. Mm-hmm. Ben Kingsley... Has done a short. He has. 
We don't know where the shot is going, what it's about, but I'm wondering if... I'm going to go ahead and guess it'll be on the Thor The Dark World uh, Blu-ray. Yeah, and I'm wondering, there's two ways you could go. It could be more about Trevor, who was quite funny, because he was just so out of it. Or are they going to retcon, and it turns out Trevor was an act after all? <laughs> and there actually is a Mandarin? Well, oh, yeah. I really... Still, but technically, they could still add the Mandarin without Trevor, because essentially, they could still have the... In, if you remember in the first one, first Iron Man, they had the Nine Rings uh, mm. organization. Yeah. So essentially, the Mandarin could just be a name that they use throughout an organization, so... I, I kind of hope they don't go back mm. to Mandarin though, because I, just I'm, to be honest, I'm sorry, but the Mandarin is kind of based on Magic. racist, racist oh, yeah. Western stereotypes. Let's talk I, about Mandarin. Go for it. It's okay. Just, <laughs> I think the way they handled him in this movie was clever because, like, they played on like the baddie of the modern day, like the thing, the kind of person that we see in the news all the time, you know, the kind of person Fox news will go, Oh, evil, bad, evil, bad. And to have them reverse that and go, no, this was a trick. This was a corporate, you know, a corporation trying to trick you into thinking there was this big baddie while they did their evil stuff. And I think that was a really smart uh, decision uh, and really, it felt like the script writers kind of, knew what was going on right now in uh, the current political climate about how people are so distracted by terrorism and stuff like that that they're not paying attention to all the things that co- big companies like um uh, you know you know who I'm talking about but bankers and so forth and so on all the evil shit that those guys do every day that never gets documented on the news just i thought that was smart I think the problem is you can't do that again. I think yeah. you can't go back to the Mandarin because now that you've done that, like bringing you up again feels forced. And anyway, that character, like if you're going to do that character properly, like he is an offensive character. So oh, just yeah. don't do him at all. I, it's, it's, I felt, I felt they were saying like the man, the way that they made Mandarin Trevor is that the Mandarin is a ridiculous idea to begin with people. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. I, and and I think they tr- they treated the Mandarin with yeah. about as much respect <laughs> as that character deserves. Could have been worse. Mm. Could have been Fin Fan Foom. Oh God! You see, that's 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 the weird thing. That's when I first I heard imagine Thor going, fighting Fin Fan Foom, but I not think so much Iron Man. I think if you reworked that dragon creature a bit, it could work. I can't see him as a main villain, though. Uh, as long as they don't turn him into some sort of ambiguous cloud. Oh, yeah, no. God. Thank God the Mandarin wasn't just a cloud. <laughs> it's a new thing. Uh, if you, if actually, if you keep uh, an eye out, there were quite a few dragon motifs in the uh, Mandarin's um, uh, setup, and uh, in some of the early concepts, his face was supposed to morph when he was on the TV into a dragon, uh, and then back again, just to keep people off guard but they just thought it was just too weird and uh, it they wanted to keep him grounded as a, a human boogeyman I think that though I think that is one of the biggest problems with the Iron Man character not just films but in general he doesn't particularly have a great cat a rogues a great rogues gallery yeah. you know how, how we look at Batman he's got a really interesting rogues gallery yeah. look at Spider-Man I'm, X-Men yeah Iron Man is like Superman not a particularly impressive 
Rose Gallery. One or two that stand out, but the rest are kind of laughable. Well, at least Superman has Brainiac and Lex. I'm yeah. only yeah. one guy. Well, and that's why I feel like no matter what film we got, Iron Man 3 was going to be a bit of a disappointment after the Avengers. Because the Avengers got so much right. Yeah. And, 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 and it had a great villain as well. Loki is a fantastic villain, and I'm glad he's back for four two because I think you can do more with that character. Um, but yeah, Iron Man. I can't think of like all the most interesting villains that Iron Man fights are a part of the Avengers Rogues Gallery, not yeah. his. Or they're they're byproducts of of a bygone age. Like most of them are communist in nature, which is ridiculous mm-hmm. by today's standards. Or uh, you know, sort of these weird motifs from when people were terrified of the Chinese. Yeah. So he kind of awkward there. Like I said, he just doesn't have that. He doesn't have the bench that Batman has for villains, which is let, kind of annoying. Let me tell you who... It, it would require some cross-pollination, but if 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 Marvel were really going to mess with things and actually give Tony Stark a really great villain that he can face, you know, repeatedly, over and over again, Norman Osborn. Yeah. Which would make sense. Yeah, especially considering he was the, uh, in the Iron Patriot armor, but of course they oh, can't use him. Freaking stupid. But, that, uh, that, I mean, he's an industrialist. He would be in, in the same military arena as, uh, Tony. If you remember when we were talking about, uh, what the Mandarin could be like when we were doing Iron Man's 1 and 2, um, the original plan was that he was just going to be another businessman. And oh, actually, that's what happened. Um, that- you see, giving him Norman Osborn would be good because Norman Osborn, for a start, would be competent. Yeah. That is like a really big problem. You look at, um, Justin Hammer, he was incompetent. You mm. look at sort of Guy Pierce's character, he was vaguely competent for the first half of the film and while things were going well, but look, I'm the villain now and I become yeah. an idiot. Mm. But didn't, I mean, didn't Osborn actually organize a lot of, uh, Avengers opposition in more recent years in, yeah. in the comics? Oh, he is in effect. He took over the Avengers. A major ba- yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. So he's a major bad guy and that's, yeah. that's the sort of, uh, villain who, if they could cross pollinate in the films, would be great. Because Peter's got Peter's spoiled for choice in terms of uh, colourful and interesting villains. Well, considering yeah. the rumour is Sinister Six for these films, which yeah. that gets me excited. Wee, that's gonna be. That's if they pull be, that off, that'll be good. Yeah. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. Or the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on Bob Dylan ring, making spirits bright. Oh, what fun it is to sing a singing song tonight. Abandoned concepts. If you listen to the uh, commentary, there is a ton of stuff that made it into the final version of this movie that was going to pay off in some way, but ended up not. And if you look carefully, they end up being these sort of loose threads. Um... One of them actually wasn't, uh, didn't even end up as a sh- in, in the film at all. But in the uh, original filming stages, there was going to be a flashback before um, uh, Tony was at this party in 1999 to when Tony was a young boy, uh, and uh, he runs over to his mother, who has just had a fight with his alcoholic father. And uh, holds up a firefly for her, and then he holds it up on the palm of his hand. And it's like, aha, see, he was Iron Man to begin with. That's symbolism for you. Uh, but they got rid of it because, and this is a direct quote, um, this movie's not about 
Tony pleasing his mother. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> the whole thing is about Tony pleasing Pepper, his new mother. Yeah. Yeah. Proving basically. that he can actually... I mean, basically, originally it was like, look, mummy, I'm clever. Now he's saying, look, Pepper, I know I'm clever, but I will forego that for you because you're just that special and important to me. <sighs> I think this is kind of a trouble with superhero films in general, that you have people coming along and want to put their own stamp and own spin on the characters, mm. instead of actually, you know, doing the characters, which is my big problem with the Raimi Spider-Mans yeah. and the Nolan Batmans. Now, for the most part, a lot of the Nolan Batmans are good, and I will not argue the fact, that, you know, that the Raimi stuff has some really interesting and good concepts, but I can look at those films and go... But that's not really the character. Yeah. It's like Alfonso Cuaron's take on Harry Potter, where he just sort of, you know, did a whole bunch of things that actually didn't fit in with the other movies mm. and the, the actual universe. Um, extremists. This is to do with abandoned concepts. There was some, a couple of odd little things about people who actually had had the extremist, uh, uh treatment. Uh, the, extre- sorry. It is extremists. Oh, I've heard it called extremist and other things, but no, it is extremist, as in extremity. Tell me if you spotted any of these. Savin, the uh, James Badgedale uh, chappy, uh, had really, really unnaturally long fingernails during one scene. It's when Happy is going, hey, and tapping his badge and saying, do you have a badge? And he sort of holds up his badge in a kind of a flip way. He has very, very long nails, and then he clips them off, and then the next scene he's actually disposing of them, which is gross. This is because Extremis makes you regenerate nails and hair much faster. He has to shave every single day because his hair keeps coming back. I did not pick up on that. They ditched that concept. It was going to be something where Tony notices that someone he's talking to has got extremely long nails and goes, Oh my God, you're an extremist person. Um, as well as the nails, he's always eating. You ever notice that one? Yeah. I know, yeah. yeah, yeah, I noticed Because that. he's burning through his cells and he needs to rejuvenate them. So he's always scoffing like uh, Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, also, everyone with the extremist treatment is apparently supposed to be really, really sexy. Again, they didn't really go with that, but the idea was supposed to be that people walking down the street would have, like, wives would leave their husbands and, and, and bump into windows and things like that, and they were supposed to be really hot and sexy, hence the actual hot and sexy lady who attacks Tony and Tennessee. I think that's just to explain why Killian became hot and sexy. <laughs> Speaking of it's, that. It's, it's the drug. Um, he has no socks. You ever notice that one? Yeah, yeah. That's because people weird. with the extremist treatment get really hot and itchy, and then so they have to wear no socks. Another abandoned concept. With good reason. That's just dumb. Yeah, Killian just rolls that way. He surely he just wear a shell suit. <laughs> just no, 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 no. They're, they're flammable. No. Yeah, true. Um, they also his hair is done to make him look like Richard Branson. Um, actually, speaking of which, um. Anyone else get a kind of a creepy Batman Forever vibe about Killian? At the beginning, he he sort of lurches up to Tony and goes, Tony, I'm your biggest fan. Exactly Mm -hmm. like Jim Carrey in Batman Forever. And at one point, he goes to to Pepper and goes, you've got to do this. And she goes, I'm sorry, Edward. The answer, sorry, I'm sorry, Killian. The answer is no. 
ah, oh, that's not going to be good for me. And he has his own, he does his own crazy thing anyway, and he's like, I'm a better Tony Stark than you'll ever be, Tony Stark. But I do like the fact that when uh, he uh, talks to him later, when Tony's strapped to the bed, he mentions that he gave him desperation by uh, abandoning him at that one point. He's not pissed at Tony. He's actually thankful to Tony. It's a nice uh, bit of uh, uh, character depth. It actually makes him a little bit like... Neil? Uh, uh, uh. Smoke me a kipper. Oh, Rimmer. Back Rimmer. for breakfast. Yeah, he's, he's Rimmer. Rimmer, who, um, when he was uh, younger, uh, got into a desperate situation and ended up becoming much more of a self-made man as a result of it. Did not see that comparison coming. Indeed. Well, Killian is Rimmer, basically. I wonder if we could link those two in some other way. There's a neat bit uh, where um, Pepper finds Tony's uh, helmet, uh, which has been um, uh, cracked uh, in the wreckage, and she holds it up and kisses it and holds. Oh, I think she just sort of holds it to her face and is, is extremely sad. There's actually a direct reference to the uh, documentary on Ayrton Senna, where uh, Senna's sister does the same thing with uh, his um, racing helmet. Um, but it's also inadvertently a reference to um, the deleted scene at the beginning of Iron Man 2. If you remember, she kisses oh, yeah. to sit out the plane. Yeah. And he jump, dives backwards. You complete me. And also, of course, little Boba Fett picking up Django Fett's helmet. <laughs> In the arena. Which the seven head doesn't fall out of. Oh my god, after he's beheaded by Nick Fury. <laughs> it all links together. Hot Pepper by Jameis Enright. When watching Iron Man 3, what comes to mind? They got the ending wrong. For a superhero movie, this is all about disempowering Tony Stark and removing Iron Man from being a superhero. But they have a perfect secondary superhero to step up and take the mantle. And no, I don't mean Iron Patriot. When Tony is down being all hyperactive, who's in charge? Pepper. Potts. When the mansion gets attacked, who wears the suit? Okay, it's at Tony's insistence, but Pepper Potts in an Iron Man suit is a great idea. And why the hell did they not continue that? For a franchise series with Joss Whedon involved, this is rather strange. Anyway, who gets a new set of powers? Pepper Potts. Who defeats the bad guy at the end with those powers and a boost from an Iron Man suit? Pepper Potts. And then who, at the end, gets all her powers removed with an off-screen line? Pepper Potts. For a superhero movie, it's all about not having superheroes. We could have had, right up to the end, Pepper becoming a new badass and being able to deal with Tony on the level of being superhuman. But instead it goes for, nope, can't let the woman have any long-term power. With Tony back to quote-unquote normal, he might be running the business more, taking her away from that. Okay, that probably won't happen, but Tony could easily have more of a hand in the business, diminishing Pepper's role. It's possible that in the next movie, Pepper could regain some powers. Certainly Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are suggesting something along this line is possible. But with no sign of Iron Man 4, and writers unlikely to over-egg the Avengers 2 movie more than they already will, it's more likely that her future role will be even more minimised. Come on, Marvel, you could do great things with this character. Stop focusing on the man in Iron Man. Next up is Lauren Grieve, known as Xavier Fox Shandy on the forums. And this essay is on the handling of post-traumatic stress disorder within Iron Man 3. Nothing's been the same since New York. Oh, really? Well, I didn't notice that at all. You experience things. And then they're over and you still can't explain them. 
gods, aliens, other dimensions. I'm, I'm just a man in a can. The only reason I haven't cracked up is probably because you moved in, which is great. I love you. I'm lucky. But honey, I can't sleep. You go to bed. I come down here. I do what I know. I take her. Threat is imminent, and I have to protect the one thing that I can't live without. That's you. And my suits, they're, uh... Machines. They're part of me. A distraction. Maybe. Tony Stark isn't like the other members of the Avengers. He's not an alien god or a super-powered soldier or a Viridian rage monster. He's just a man who likes to build stuff. He was the least psychologically prepared out of all of them for the Battle of New York in the Avengers, and this is compounded by the fact that he experienced the worst part of the battle, guiding a nuke fired by his own side through a rapidly closing portal to somewhere else while his suit loses power and he loses consciousness. It was only by luck and a well-placed catch by the Hulk that saved Tony in the end. Fast forward to the events of Iron Man 3, and you have a distinctly broken man. It would appear that Tony Stark is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after dying in New York, or almost dying in New York. Uh, now, the DSM-5 criteria for diagnosing PTSD has eight components, so let's explore whether or not Tony actually has PTSD first. The first part is that you must have exposure to an actual or threatened event, serious injury, or sexual violence. This is very clearly the case since uh, Tony nearly died after guiding said nuke and all the stuff I just previously mentioned. Now, the second part is there must be a presence of one or more intrusion symptoms associated with the traumatic event that forces him to re-experience it. This is in the form of dreams and flashbacks with marked psychological reactions. And we see this periodically throughout Iron Man 3, almost any time someone mentions the Battle of New York. The third part of uh, PTSD diagnosis would be persistence avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic event beginning after the traumatic event occurred. This is again clearly seen throughout the movie. Whenever anyone goes to bring up the events of the Battle of New York, he refuses to discuss it. He has very avoidant behavior related to anything related to that event. The fourth portion of the diagnosis is where you start to bring in some of the symptomatic criteria. Specifically, this is negative alteration of cognition. There are seven different examples, and you need two to have an appropriate positive diagnosis. Tony exhibits five of them throughout the movie. Namely, a distorted cognition of the event in such a way that he blames himself. This is uh, more internalized and in why he suddenly starts making all of those suits for every occasion so he can never be caught unprepared again. Another symptom is persistent negative emotional state in the sense of the fear or the horror or the shame that he feels after having taken part in those events. The next one is diminished interest in significant activities, which you can clearly see with his interactions with Pepper Potts throughout much of the beginning of the first act. Uh, a feeling of detachment from others, again, very obvious with Happy and, and Pepper. And the last criteria that Tony really exhibits is a persistence inability to experience positive emotions. At no point in the first two acts of this film does Tony show any emotion other than fear and shame and guilt. The fifth diagnosis criteria is a marked alteration to arousal and reactivity associated with the event. Again, there are six different criteria that are uh, given as examples, and you need two out of those six to be positively diagnosed, and Tony exhibits four of them. Reckless or self-destructive behavior, which is 
kind of the whole crux of the film with him taunting the Mandarin that eventually causes his house to be exploded. And just every strange decision that Tony makes throughout the film can be related to this actual very real symptom of PTSD. Another criteria is hypervigilance, which you can plainly see in how he constructs all of those suits, and he's just trying to be as prepared as possible, uh, testing them again and again, trying to make it so they can come to him if needed, or be automated, as you see in the end, that always looking out for what problem he could run into next and trying to be prepared for it. The next criteria that he exhibits is an exaggerated startle response, which you see periodically throughout the film. Uh, They play it more for comedic effect than anything else, but it is still a very real component of PTSD. And the last part is sleep disturbances. He mentions that he doesn't sleep well and he really has had nothing but insomnia since the event of the Battle of New York. That's how he built all of those suits in the first place. That's how he had the time. The next part of a full PTSD diagnosis is that it must be at a duration over one month, which we clearly see in the movie. He mentions that it's been over a month since the uh, Battle of New York. The next part is a disturbance causes significant distress or impairment to social, occupational, or other areas of functioning, which is really obvious given those symptoms I had previously mentioned. And the last part of a PTSD diagnosis is that it is not attributable to a physiological effect of a substance or other condition. And this is particularly interesting considering that in the comic, Tony is a raging alcoholic, and that's where most of his problems come from. But in the films, he actually stops drinking alcohol after the PTSD starts to take over his life. So you can't attribute it to the one substance you would assume that Tony would be doing. Now, this near-perfect portrayal of PTSD is a little unexpected from a superhero movie, but it makes perfect sense for Tony's character. If anything, portraying PTSD in such an accurate way humanizes Tony quite a bit. The experience from the Avengers rocked his personality to the core and made him overcompensate to try and convince himself that he was still a hero. His outward personality became more extreme, while his actual personality, as seen when he's alone or just with Pepper, was a total wreck. Furthermore, the introduction of a disorder like this plays into the themes present in the Iron Man movies all along. Every one of the Iron Man movies has been about Tony's hubris and assholery causing every major issue he has faced. In the first Iron Man, Obadiah Stane basically takes control of the company and becomes the Ironmonger because Tony doesn't take any interest in the business that he's supposed to be running and prefers to live his life with the assumption that everyone else is less intelligent than him and therefore can never blindside him. The whole point of Iron Man 2 was trying to knock Tony and his father worship down a peg for being a prideful jerk. And then Iron Man 3 is no different in that Killian's motives only exist because of Tony's actions towards him at the convention in the very beginning, well before the Iron Man shenanigans that we've seen in the movies. All of Tony's problems are from the fallout from his poor choices. Really, I almost feel that in Iron Man 3, the main villain was Tony himself and his inability to accept what had happened to him and that his actions causes his problems. When he's brought low by something as mundane as PTSD, something that a hero wouldn't be expected to have a problem with, it finally shakes him out of it and allows him to accept the help he gets from various sources, like Rhodes and from Pepper at the very end. The moment in the third act of Iron Man 3, when Tony starts to fight back with his army of Jarvis-run suits, is a real turning point for him and his disorder. 
One of the methods commonly used in PTSD therapy is to relive the traumatic experience in such a way as to have more control over how you react to memories of the event. By harnessing these emotions and fighting Killian and his drones, Tony comes to terms with his own fragility and becomes a better person because of it. His destruction of the various suits is a release for Tony as he expunges his paranoia and fear to become the hero that he never really was before. His decision to remove the fragment in his heart is a final act to show that he isn't going to rely on the technology as a crutch. But his recovery of the helper bot at the end hints that he's not done inventing, so he's going to still make the technology, but he's not going to rely on it for his psychological well-being. Basically, the first movie is Tony becoming the Iron Man. The second movie shows how reliant Tony has become on Iron Man for both his safety and his personality. And the final movie, Iron Man 3, shows the journey of Iron Man becoming Tony Stark once again. Oh, I didn't mention that I really like the music. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, you know what else I liked is just a throwaway thing. Is that end credit sequence? I really do like that yeah. end credit sequence. And you dig it? It's awesome. Uh, another thing I really, really love, um, and this, I can't help but smile at this point. Uh, aside from the uh, throwaway line of "I give up," I've got to get out of here. This place is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's like every every single henchman should act like that. It's like. Wait, we were just supposed to guard this house. What is up with this flying robot and these limbs growing explosions? I'm out. Yeah, I did like that. that, was, that was and the nice. whole thing of the henchman where he knows exactly what Tony's talking about. Yeah, I went to college sort of thing. Well, speaking of, we never talked about um, Trevor. Slattery. Trevor. Yeah. Okay, I have... I, I found him hilarious, and when Guy Pearce says um, he was the toast, his his King Lear was apparently the toast of Croydon, wherever that is. That got a, that got a huge laugh from Paul Shotton, um, and uh, I, I, I love that bit. I, I like I say wasn't massively attached to the Mandarin. I, I thought that the um, "You'll never see me coming" was a really great villain idea, but I, I also think that the switcheroo and the say, the symbolism of saying. You don't have to be afraid of this bogeyman. There is no one like this out there who's anywhere near as powerful as you fear. That's actually quite a reassuring thought, whether it's true or not. Yeah, it is one of the reasons why I was a little bit disappointed about this, because one of the things I did like in the Extremis story itself was the fact that the terrorist was a homegrown one, not some sort of weird foreigner. It was someone ingrown, and that was an interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and the switch was a good idea. Yeah. I think Josh is right. The Mandarin is not that interesting. I was going to say, I think it's a good idea that deserved to be in a better film, basically. Yeah. See, I did still drunk problem. They they offered to get you off it. No, they gave me more. <laughs> they gave me all these things. It was a, a, an incredibly whimsical performance, and I I can't not laugh at that. Uh, I do have nagging doubts though um, about. Because yeah, he seems like he's out of it and he's unaware that people were dying. But the point where he shoots the guy who works for Roxxon, um, I'm assuming that those that gun was full of blanks. Yeah, and then they but, went off and killed him somewhere else. But why didn't the guy who goes for Roxxon under, under camera go, I'm still not dead, you know. <laughs> full of blanks, he's lying. <laughs> I've broken both my legs. I'm I, very badly burned. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm assuming the logistics were that the guy from Roxxon thought, oh, they haven't killed me. That's all right. I guess I'll just keep quiet about it. Oh, and then they just shoot him. It's, and- it's literally like, oh, thank God he missed. He's like, I'll just stay here. They'll drag me outside and I'll run for it. <laughs> if you think about it again too hard, I don't really think that Slattery could actually do that without thinking about the people who he's affecting. Mm. I think, you know, theatrical as he is, he is underneath a human, especially if they're going to carry on with his character, hilarious though he is, that, that he's committing a terrible, terrible, uh, he, he's, he's, he's committing an act of terrorism, whether it's uh, intentional or not. Yeah. He's literally been the mouthpiece to terrif- terrify people, which is why I have slightly nagging doubts about his, uh, continuance in the Marvel Universe. I also think that, that we're taking away the, um, the scenario, the, 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 absurd situation of the actual film whether if you're looking like in this short coming up um, whether that will be hilarious or not I think yeah it will be, be interesting to see you know, it, I, it I think depends on the story they're trying to tell yeah I think it'll just be Trevor's rise to fame from being the Mandarin and just loving it hmm Anyway, oh, so actually, you do turn him into the Mandarin. Who knows? The PTSD. I don't think I really talked about it much. I really uh, respect Downey's performance on that. He threw mm-hmm. himself into those. I actually, um, it, it got to me just seeing his um, panic, and uh, I, I've had anxiety attacks myself. They are not a joke at all. And everyone laughing in the audience, I was like, "Shut up, you fuckers!" But um, yeah, it's it's intense. And I kind of wish they'd followed up on it properly, and because obviously Tony Stark requires therapy. You know, so it's something he's never sought out, and obviously he's barking up the wrong tree at the end. But they're at least showing that he's ready for that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just interesting because he should be in shock. He's just had his world literally rocked. He was fighting alongside, you know, a guy from the forties and a god. Yeah. and found out aliens do exist. Although he Stop. refers to himself as just a man in a tin can, which I think is selling himself way short. He is a hero to millions. Well, that's how he felt in that moment, yeah. just a man in a tin can. If anything, it's like Scarlet, um, yeah, Black Widow and um, Hulk. Hawkeye, who should be the ones that are feeling oh, a bit sorry. left out, because yeah. you know, Hulk is massive and kind of bulletproof. Captain America's a super soldier... Tony's got, um, you know, the suit of armor. You've got Thor, who is a god. Those guys have got guns and... Uh, and you know, on... taking anger management issues. Yes! <laughs> and you have managed to piss off each and every one of them. <laughs> that was the plan. Not a great plan. I have an army. We have a Hulk. <laughs> okay, the music by Brian Taylor. Um, I missed ACDC, if I'm honest. I did. Uh, they... Uh, it felt like that being out of it disjointed it from the rest of the Iron Man films. Uh, the first soundtrack was uh, Ramin Javadi, and uh, Iron Man 2 was uh, John Debney. So it's not like they had to keep that consistency. One thing I love is uh, the central theme of Iron Man 3, that... It seems like it's inspired by the Avengers, and there's that... Pile drivers. He is the engineer. He is the mechanic. He is all about the machines and the pounding of hammers and the forge. They, he completely nails Tony Stark in that, and there is an epic, heroic quality about that. 
And even turning it into Can You Dig It at the end, that sort of Lalo Schifrin-inspired funky version, it fits perfectly as well. So, yeah, love the uh, the score. But I did miss ACDC. And the various Christmas-related songs were not a replacement. It's Christmas time, pretty baby And snow is on the ground Said it better be good now, baby Wow, Santa Claus is back in town I don't got no sleigh with reindeer I don't talk. It's almost like the film was too self-conscious to stick ACDC in does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, but the thing is that the whole point of Tony Stark using ACDC makes sense because it's loud and bombastic just yeah. like Tony Stark. The fact he uses Shoot to Thrill as entrance music, <laughs> you know, literally, that's <laughs> what it is in The Adventures. It is his entrance music. He is loud, he's over the top, and he's using this music to, to, to even make it seem even bigger. Yeah. So when it's not there, but then again, it makes sense that it's not there because through this film, he isn't quite that loud, bombastic character. In which case it should really be at the end. But then again, yeah. he's a changed man, so it's almost like he left ACDC behind. Mm. It'll be back in the next one. I wonder. We'll see. Rioma on use of the Iron Man suits. When Iron Man came out on phase one, it was great, although it suffered from some Hollywoodisms like winning the final battle because of a villain's oversight. The armour was, if not realistic, rooted in sci-fi rules – ballistic weapons instead of unibeams, stabilisers even if they looked awful, etc. By Iron Man 2, most of those things started to get phased out if they were still present. But Tony's big challenge was himself, not the bad guy. Makes sense, since the Iron Man suit is supposed to be a MacGuffin artefact in the comics, never to be surpassed. In Avengers, we finally see Iron Man go toe-to-toe with Thor, Loki and Space Dragons. So it bothered me to see 70 different models ripped apart by failed super-soldiers. Even the Hulkbuster. Wasn't the Hulkbuster. Also, I hate pyrokinetics with super strength. That concept makes no sense. In that regard, wouldn't it make more tactical sense to use Extremis on sheep and use them like in the Worms game? (laughs) So while the PTSD worked well, better than palladium poisoning, although not a replacement for drunkenness, and it was fun to see Tony going all Batman on the baddies, the final confrontation felt empty and meaningless against a lame foe. Is that supposed to be a pun? Because Killian is literally lame. He has to use a walking stick. Ooh. <laughs> Missed opportunity. I loved the Mandarin in this movie, and if he had found rings or some other Hollywood analogue, it would have been amazing. The idea that this character would win power and try to become a supervillain would have provided a more endurable threat to Phase 2 than all this science heroes. Oh, my God! That... That's... is that Iron Man? Technically, I am. Technically, you're dead. Valid point. What happened to him? Life. I built him. I take care of him. I'll fix him. Like a mechanic? Yeah. If I was building Iron Man and War Machine... It's Iron Patriot now. That's way cooler! No, it's not. Anyways, I would have added in um, 
the retro... Retro reflective panels? To make them stealth mode. You want a stealth mode? Cool, right? That's actually a good idea. Maybe I'll build one. Not Oops. a good idea. What are you doing? You're going to break his finger? He's in pain. He's been injured. Leave him alone. Sorry. Are you? Don't worry about it. I'll fix it. The kid? Did he bother you? Was he nice? Did you like him? I, like, I, like. I liked him. He was not annoying, which is good. Yeah. So you're just going to leave me like my dad? <laughs> yes. <sighs> that is what's happening. Well, the, the thing I appreciated was that he just... He wasn't a stupid kid. Because yeah. kids in films often are stupid and when they are intelligent like in stuff like uh, Super 8 and stuff like that it's a pleasant surprise because you're actually suddenly seeing children who are behaving like actual children yeah. and not the idiots that Hollywood think they are I love the fact that Tony speaks to the child as he would speak to uh, Rhodey or Pepper or a US <laughs> Senator he speaks to everyone in roughly the same way Dad leaves People grow up, get over it. He doesn't just sort of Don't like look pussy. at the kid and go, oh, <laughs> a kid, I don't know what those are. What do you want? Do you want candy? Go away. Mm. No, he, he speaks to him like he would speak to an adult. There's a certain uh, a lack of prejudice in the way Tony uh, relates to other people, in that he can't relate to any other people, which... Uh, he relates to Bruce. Yeah, he does yeah. relate to Bruce. He can't relate to Gary. I love the Gary character, the guy who sort of turns up and goes, oh my God, it's you. I've sort of, you know, modeled myself after you. I don't know See, if you can tell. I, f- I felt that's just some sort of acknowledging the fact that's Robert Downey Jr.'s life right now. Yeah. There was a lot of like Robert Downey Jr. crossover with uh, um, uh, Tony Stark. It's almost like um, uh, when he leaves, he's now Robert Downey Jr. and not Tony Stark. That's kind of what made me feel, oh, what are they doing? Um, be calm about it. <laughs> I don't want to make things awkward for no. you, but I do yeah, have to good. show you. Boom! Yeah, I tried to get it to yeah. look like you and me in the same face. Your eyes aren't as dead as they are here, but I kind of like that because if I go like this, it looks like you're having it, like you have a headache. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. And now you're, and you get like more pensive. <laughs> Breathe it in. Marinate on it. He took a little bit of his own interpretation. Thank you. I mean, I, I would, I would eventually like to get like a yeah, whole yeah, sleeve. Yeah. Eyes are both facing yeah. this way, which is weird. Gary? There's always something. You're blowing my mind. Yeah, the the guy with the tattoo, the uh, Hispanic Scott Bio. That's <laughs> that's like a, a a line lifted straight out of um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang when they're talking about Native American Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. <laughs> Harder, better, faster, stronger. A review of Phase 1 and the beginning of Phase 2 for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and my worries of escalation. Let me start off by saying I really like Iron Man 3 and love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In no way is this me bagging on the quality of the movies, for I believe they are all solid, fun movies at the least. I do wish to state my fears for the looming future of the movies and the threat of sequel escalation on them. In phase one of this universe, we had some fairly exciting events, yet they were all kept from going too big with one hero. Iron Man ends with a rough and tumble fight at night in LA, avoiding much civilian contact. Iron Man 2 ended with a fight with a bunch of robot goons and Crimson Dynamo versus Iron Man and War Machine after trashing the Stark Expo. The Incredible Hulk ends with a brutal clash between the Hulk and Abomination in Harlem. 
Thor finished with him fighting the destroyer armor in a small town in the middle of a desert. Captain America likely had the biggest ending to any of the single hero focused movies, with him stopping Red Skull from bombing major, multiple major cities before tragically being encapsulated in ice. Phase 1 then culminated with the formation of the Avengers and them stopping the Chathari from invading Earth and S.H.I.E.L.D. from nuking New York. While this is great and all, it begs the question, when are we going to reach the limit? My fear for the future of this universe is that things will be growing too big, too fast. Iron Man 3 proved to be successful, but it ended with Tony Stark and Rhodey saving the president. A fight scene with 42 different Iron Man suits, all of them being destroyed, Pepper Potts gaining and losing powers, and Tony Stark having a surgery in which the signature arc reactor is removed. If you didn't notice, this is a huge jump from what happened in the two previous Iron Man movies, and from what we can see of the later Phase 2 movies, they also seem to be upping the ante. Thor 2 will have a war with the Asgardians and Dark Elves. Guardians of the Galaxy will be another team-up movie introducing the vast and galaxy-sprawling Nova Corps. And the trailer for Captain America 2 already shows helicarriers falling out of the sky. These movies are all responding to the epicness that was The Avengers, a movie in which a team of heroes group up to save the world. How much more epic can you get than that? Save the galaxy? Universe? We know now that Avengers 2 will be about Ultron and his creation, and how he seems to be connected with Tony Stark. This will probably make a great movie in which we get to see Tony and the others develop as characters. But how will the general audience react? This movie is going to be smaller in scope than the first Avengers was. Hell, probably more than some of the Phase 2 movies. Audiences may just walk out of this one feeling disappointed. The Marvel movies have proven that they can be fun and tell compelling stories at the same time. They deserve better than having to resort to going bigger and better for attracting audiences. We want to see superhero movies grow to develop that budding social commentary that we are seeing in them, but it will be a balancing act with the bar they have set for themselves in terms of keeping things exciting so as to continue audiences coming back in droves. I do want to say, so far, no Marvel Cinematic Universe movie has made me feel like its existence makes one of the others feel too small or irrelevant. The Avengers and Iron Man 3 make the first Iron Man feel no less of a spectacle to watch now as it was in 2008, a testament to Joss Whedon, Shane Black, and the Disney slash Marvel Studios for caring about the talent that goes into these things. But that looming feeling of spectacle escalation is definitely there, and I'll be sad to see the day it comes, if it does at all. I cherish going to the theater and it being jam-packed with people waiting to see the next Marvel movie. And I never want it to end. Addendum. Never mind, one Marvel movie has made a previous one look like a weaker overall movie. Mark Ruffalo is just a better Bruce Banner than Ed Norton. End. Okay Jarvis, I just gave my home address to an international terrorist and challenged him to a fight. 
I want you to cancel all detective work rendering projects and focus all of our resources on defending my house from attack, all right? Very well, sir. Shall I engage the house party protocol now, then? Sure, why not? <laughs> so who's bullying you? How do you know I get picked on at school? Because you hang out with middle-aged guys in garages? Oh. Here, kid. I have a weaponized flare to use on a bully or whatever. Is this legal? <gasps> You're freaking me out! <laughs> you realize this is the exact premise of the Pixar film Incredibles. What? No. Yes. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. I met you a long time ago, hurt your feelings, which pushed you over the edge, and now you're a supervillain, currently with the upper hand, and I'm temporarily trapped. It's totally the same story. This is not, first of all, I'm surprised Tony Stark even knows that movie well enough to reference his storyline. And secondly, what do you mean temporarily trapped? Your hands are totally permanently secured in those zip ties. You're not going anywhere. You are Syndrome. And I am Mr. Incredible. This is not the same. I can breathe fire. I even have a black friend who helps me fight crime. And he has a super suit. Oh my gosh, this is totally the Incredibles. You know what bugs me? What? When the president is being held hostage in the Iron Patriot suit, the suit is completely useless. But when Rhodey puts it on, it suddenly works completely fine. That's what bothers you? Yeah, that bugs me. Well, you know what bugs me? How you got all the way back to Gotham City after climbing out of that prison on the other side of the planet. Why don't you explain that? Why do so many people have a problem with this? I said, it's because I'm Batman. Can we get back to the story, please? Fine, continue. Hey, how come your broad didn't burn in the fire? What? Tony! The world's in danger! It's time to assemble! We need you! Avengers! Need Tony! Need suit. Oh, you guys are still around. I'm sorry, everyone. I just blew up all my suits. I'm kind of a changed man now. Why would you blow up all your suits? See, it was sort of metaphorical, showing Pepper that she's more important than any mission, and, and I'm more than just a suit. Plus, it's Christmas. I heard your call, my brothers and sisters. Let us go forth to victory! Tony just blew up all of his suits. Sayeth what? Why would Snell do this? Yeah, Stark is out. He's... He's totally whipped, but I might have an alternate. Pepper, you're basically like Terminator 2 now. You want to take Tony's place on this one? Me? Yeah, girl. You want to go save the world? Really? That actually sounds exciting. She can't replace me. What just happened here? She killed the Mandarin. With my tech? Guys, I blew up all my suits, but that doesn't mean I'm not still Iron Man. So you want to go with us? Okay. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. Come on. Pepper! She can't replace me! I am Iron Man! You hear me? I am Iron Man! So is Jarvis! Okay, before I go deep on Iron Man 3, I'm just going to get everyone in the mood again by playing the brilliant theme by Mr. Brian Taylor. This most definitely rivals the Avengers as my favourite piece of superhero music ever.
Okay. Is everybody ready for me to do my bit? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Alex Shaw on The Path Interrupted. My adoration for the previous three appearances of Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark have been well documented on this show. So it was with some excitement that I started watching the second sequel following the spin-off. When I left the theatre, I had nagging doubts, but still liked the production. Those doubts have had months to take full form, hence the delay in this review, and I can now crystallise them for you. However, it's with the proviso that this could change in time, depending on what happens in Avengers Age of Ultron in 2015, at the close of this second phase. The film is largely inoffensive and rather funny throughout, exhibiting the same canny wit and organic improvisational humour as Shane Black's other notable Downey Jr. movie, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I could complain about the lack of Tony in armour, making this more of a Stark story than an Iron Man instalment, but I've already stated plainly that Downey's Stark is more than compelling enough to watch in a standalone movie. It's actually a deliberately classic Hollywood production at times, Capra-esque and riffing on Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday and Preston Sturge's Sullivan's Travels, it may not be what I love about the Marvel Universe, but there's plenty here to like nonetheless. I won't rage about Mandarin or Killian. There are plenty of other people to do that. What I will do, though, is take you down the path of the hero, because that is something that interests me greatly. I search through movies for symbolism and meaning, analogy, mythology and metaphor. That's what I do. That's what real reviewing is for me. Excellent camera work and sound production are window dressing to the core story. I have... Roughly three points to make, and they are further strengthened by listening to the commentary last night and hearing writer-director Shane Black and co-writer Drew Pierce admonish Marvel fans for picking up on dozens of oversights, plot holes, and character inconsistencies. To them, this was just a bit of fun, and to many audience members, that was fully achieved. To me, fun is integral to the Iron Man story, but so is the journey begun in 2008, and what we ended up with here was a screeching halt, a stumble, and a face plant into the dirt, steered by men who didn't seem to really fully understand the significance of their actions. Or did they? Let me explain. In Iron Man 1, we meet selfish, egotistical, weapons-dealing, techno-genius Tony Stark. We see him unceremoniously knocked from his place at the top of society to the bedrock of critically injured kidnap victim, forced to build weapons for murderers, something he's been doing for years, but in a respectable and societally accepted circumstances. In true Robin Hood form, he goes from Lord of the Manor, deaf to the cries of the people, to their saviour in shining armour of his own making, motivated only to make amends for his life of misdeeds. He builds himself back up from the nothing he has become, and in doing so he trades his wretched, broken human heart for a shining blue light, representing his best of intentions and the furnace that powers the shield he now uses to protect humanity. In Iron Man 2 he finds that technology he put his faith in that was to help him become a better man is in fact killing him. Confronted with his own impending demise and despite crushing alcoholic depression Tony tries even harder to leave a legacy of good intentions behind him. He promotes Pepper, the maternal figure in his life and the only one patient enough to look after him, to being the one who will look after his company. In essence he has no children but the fruits of his own creativity. Pepper will tend to them and ensure that they are used for the best. By the end of the film, he is reconnected with the father he thought was lost, continuing that man's work and at the same time revealing the genuine love he has for Pepper, thus doubly unifying with his own superego and in doing this creating an entirely new element that will change the world and save his life. In The Avengers, Tony meets people who make him feel less special, an intimidating, beautiful, 
God, a super soldier with the strongest of human hearts, who goes out of his way to challenge Tony on a personal level, an unspeakable force of nature who terrifies the entire world. Tony loses a friend and lays down his life in a one-way trip to save Manhattan and, by extension, the planet. In surviving this brush with death, which occurred in circumstances well beyond his control, he inadvertently ended up as part of a team, though the experience shook him to his very core. In Iron Man 3, the post-traumatic stress of these events, and let's face it, the preceding years, finally catches up with Tony in an ably handled series of sequences which still draw unintentional laughs from nervous audiences unable to deal with what they were seeing. The suit has taken on a life of its own, puppeteered by Tony and taking up all of his attention as he desperately tries to find ways he can help people without literally being in the thick of battle. To save without risking anything, heroism without sacrifice, he secretly resents Pepper for being the one person he cannot abide any harm coming to. He's terrified of this occurring and it being his fault, but he knows that because of who he is and what he is compelled to do, that makes her a target, the trial of any hero who wants to be loved on a personal level. That resentment surfaces as the suit extending from Tony literally attacks Pepper. Then Happy is injured. Tony is angered and reacts in a childish and unprepared manner, drawing attention to himself in a bid to confront his fears, when what he really wants to do is put Pepper somewhere permanently safe, ergo, away from him. Her intention to leave is playing into his internal plan of becoming the lone warrior again, secure in his fortress. Playing along with the idea that there was some measure of intent in the script writing, seemingly this is not a plan Tony has considered deeply. Eschewing the suits he has worn to victory in the past, he is purposefully wearing untested, power-guzzling armor that is neither combat-ready nor prepped for flight, and that he cannot rely upon. The house's defense systems either do not activate or he's never had them in the first place, despite all actual requirement given his position. His castle explodes around him, and rather than take on the helicopters in midair where he could wipe the floor with them, he cowers in the rubble and throws a piano at them. Then the castle falls and he drops with it, feigning struggle, but in actuality, accepting death. Pepper is safe. This is the end of Tony Stark. But it was not the end. Jarvis, his disembodied, artificially created, and thus now superfluous superego followed an earlier dismissive comment and drags him unconscious halfway across the country to investigate some MacGuffin about their attackers, but really this is a wintry foxhole, a retreat for Tony to go back to zero within, to once again build himself back up and whether he admits this to himself or not. Now here is where my contention comes. These are the actions of a man coming apart. That I understand fully, more than most. He rejects his many armoured suits, safe under the rubble, embraces his new deceased status and busies himself with repairing the suit he knows he can operate with in a manner that won't directly endanger him. He's not getting stronger, he's further distracting himself with the pursuit of heroism by proxy. All the while he's aided by a mysterious child who seemingly only Tony can see. It's not intentional in a script so unconcerned with symbolism, but this is Tony's inner child, the socially awkward technological whiz kid with an absentee father, only this time he's stuck in a situation that does not prize or offer any use for his talents. Then after a scuffle he rejects all the suits, builds himself a Home Depot stun rig and infiltrates the lair of what he thought was the most dangerous man on the planet. This is an unusual move as the man extracts himself from the armor to see if he can stand and fight without it. And he succeeds. For a while. Then is captured. And calls the armor back, totally negating the original intent. 
unless, of course, we're still buying the it ran out of batteries, plug it into the wall socket for a few hours like it's an iPad excuse, ignoring the power cell in Tony's chest, the arc reactor that could keep a factory going indefinitely. At this stage, all the shadows of post-traumatic stress disorder are dispensed with without notice in order to propel the story forwards. It is from here that it is derailed. Tony puppeteers the Mark 42 in a bloodless, consequence-free aerial action sequence and succeeds in rescuing the passengers on Air Force One, further reinforcing the theory that he can be a hero without personal danger. Though, of course, if he had failed due to some technological hitch or a split-second human reaction requirement unfulfilled, it would have cast this fantasy into shadow. Again, like Iron Man 2, this touches on the political theme of manned or automatic drone versus human success rate in the combat field but fails to make any strong statement either way. In Iron Man 2, Tony and Rhodey succeed against five armies of drones. In Iron Man 3, Tony makes the world's best drone and succeeds. The ultimate message being, if you want to win, be Tony Stark. A message that drains all tension from the action sequences of both movies. This also has a certain real-world ramifications. Downey actually did hurt his foot while filming and is getting on in years. He's likely and understandably doesn't want to be flinging himself around in real-life stunts, so it kind of makes sense to push the drone agenda for future movies to secure the Stark everyone wants to see without endangering the actor everyone wants to be safe. The issue is, of course, whether true tension can be regained from this scenario. In Iron Man 3, after he has reassured himself that he can, in fact, control the situation with drones, Tony once again throws himself into mortal danger without the suits. But then he brings in 40 suits and flips in and out of them in mid-air for a tedious protracted action sequence that manages to be even worse than the one at the end of Iron Man 2. At least Iron Man was present for that one. And when I say Iron Man, I mean whoever Tony Stark believes Iron Man to be in relation to himself. Because symbolically speaking, this is nonsensical. Does Tony want to be Tony or Iron Man or both? If you take what happens at the end of the film as the aftermath, I am Iron Man, none of those three choices make sense in relation to the actions he takes in this sequence. Tony survives repeatedly because of the suits. He fails to save Pepper without them, and she only survives because of Extremis. The only escape from requiring this technology to survive, it would seem, is to not be Tony Stark or indeed anyone who knows him. This is not only the filmmakers' attempt to have their cake and eat it, they are in fact starving us of cake and then force-feeding us Mr. Kipling until we puke. Either it's a film about Tony the Man, or it's a film about awesome flying box office gold Transformers. This reminds me of the end of Mass Effect 3 and how up in arms everybody was, only that sequence, as we now know, was deeply considered. This one seems otherwise. As the action culminates, we get our first taste of danger as Pepper falls to her apparent death. I'm not sure how many people believe they would actually go through with this one, which had been a theory of mine since Avengers. For Tony to be the man the world needs him to be, Pepper must either be safe or dead. Either away from Tony, protected by her own armour, or gone from the earth. I was terribly afraid for her and prayed for the second option of a kick-ass armoured Iron Maiden Pepper whom he could worry about ever so slightly less, and who would understand his role as the Armoured Avenger all the more. We even sort of get that, with Paltrow kicking ass, dispatching the baddie, and symbolically destroying the suit that had come between them. Joss Whedon specifically liked that moment. However, that does also mean Tony never loses. He doesn't lose Pepper, he doesn't lose Happy, he doesn't lose Rhodey, he doesn't lose any of the people on Air Force One. Even Agent Coulson is back on the telly. Maya is forgotten the moment she cocks it, and he barely even remembers his brief association with her. And in fact, the only person he's ever had to mourn within the span of these films 
is Yinsen, back in the first third of Iron Man 1. How can Tony grow as a person if all the mistakes he makes bring the same happy endings as the technological miracles he performs? This was the film to show that you cannot fly high forever. Instead, they drop the ball completely. It becomes a scenario of, look, I can see now it's a binary choice of either you or the suits, Pepper. No question of the outcome. The suits explode, satisfying the audience of girls who like to see romantic and self-sacrificing gestures and boys who like to see explosions. But not me. Even five-year-old Lyra turned to me just now and said, but what about when other bad people come and try to hurt them? These are situations they cannot run or hide from, and we already know the Avengers will not save us in the in-between movies. They were on the right track suiting up and taking on their enemies like true warriors. Ultimately, this is not a film about Tony being the man the world needs him to be, a warm light for all mankind to share. It's a film about a wayward boy growing up and getting a girlfriend. Tony and Pepper rid themselves of all things mechanical, the extremist nanites, which in the book this is based on, Tony used to jumpstart himself into a fusion of man and machine, gone. Tossed away because they were too weird and unstable. He stops playing hero and he has his heart for the people removed, to be tossed out to sea like Maverick's father's dog tags, in a symbolic resignation and moving on to the next stage in his life. Tony the Futurist, a man so gifted he was able to combine the human body with machines in a way that hints at an evolutionary step forward, turns around and rejects that link. He literally throws it away, destroying the suits that represent distractions to his true calling, that of a nice, safe life, lavishing attention on his rich wife. Fuck the future of mankind. I want to live in the present for the first time. Mature, bolted down, well-adjusted, boring. As he drives away in his Audi, at the time, I had tears in my eyes. His final statement, I am Iron Man, implies that everything special about the hero exists within him. But I asked you listeners, if he destroys the armor, rejects the danger inherent to the role, abandons the people and literally tosses away his heart in pursuit of a quiet life, what is even left? This seemed a desperately mismanaged ending, especially considering the events that will have to occur for the next Avengers film. Ultron, the mechanical creation with human sentience, has already occupied our screens. The comically break-apart Mark 42, along with Jarvis's intelligence, when mass-produced, may seem like a brilliant idea for Stark in attempting to pass the torture protection responsibility to these tireless automatons, but he's basically crafting Skynet. If that's the case, then this happy ending, wherein Tony has had the shards that were threatening his life made into a necklace for Pepper, may in retrospect be a baleful portent of things to come. Which confuses things no end, because it's heavily implied that Pepper is right, and we're absolutely supposed to be with Tony on these important grown-up decisions. Uh, but we know, due to Marvel's forever ongoing nature, that this is a story that literally can't end here. So any notion of peaceful, non-heroic existence will be both short-lived and self-destructive. He even bestows the mantle of techno-wizard upon the boy, sending back to Harley, his inner child, the potential for future development, because this engineering focus is, seemingly, just another distraction from what's really important in life. And it's, of course, hard to argue with the sweet-natured intentions, being with the one you love. It is a warm-hearted pretense of a happy ending, a cosy, flimsy marital cottage at the end of the path of the hero, destined to be destroyed. It seems Tony's ultimate loss is a distinct iron deficiency. I am human. 
At least that's what I thought until a few minutes ago on seeing this for the fourth time. I realised with the hints that Tony places about tinkering with Extremis and the vagueness in which he addresses its actual ejection from his system, coupled with the references to coming out of his cocoon, comparing the classic suit to a shell, but also heavily referencing the literal techno-evolutionary process that takes place within the six-issue extremist storyline written by Warren Ellis, I realized that if you could zoom into his central nervous system at that exact point, you might just see tiny little nanite machines beavering away to bring him to the next stage of the Iron Man. This has huge potential possible ramifications for Avengers 2 and what future armor concepts could entail and indeed the future of Iron Man. So the deception continues and let the regular people be happy with Tony being normal at long last. I'm fairly certain that engineering is in his blood. So there you go. That was the entire emotional gamut of what the fuck I went through about Iron Man 3. The trouble is, you're hoping that they pick up some of those beats in whatever they do to choose to follow, because I, I think they've said they're not doing an Iron Man 4. Yeah. And, and Downey Jr. is only contracted now to be in Avengers 2. Well, Age of Ultron. Yeah. So, because uh, I, I, wasn't it around about two or, or or in between one and two that I think it was Kevin Ferguson was uh, talking about the fact that oh we could do it like James Bond with Iron Man you know keep the character but different actor yeah but now but the thing is so in a hundred years time <laughs> there will never be an Iron Man 4 or reboot they didn't even wait five years for Spider-Man 4 nay I'm happy they rebooted Spider-Man but Josh will shout at me because I, <laughs> I don't like the Raimi films <laughs> But um, well, I think the idea was like Bond. The character remains, but it's a different actor. But the trouble is, you say Iron Man, it is synonymous now with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. He owns that role. He actually... Let's face it, one of the praises we gave him is the fact he made Tony Stark likeable. Not just likeable, but fascinating. Hmm. Because he was kind of like James Bond originally. Just boring. And a bit of a knob in places. Yeah. But, yeah, Bond is a bit of a knob. No, good point. Do you fancy a bit of a knob in places? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Bad Alex, no biscuits. Sorry, sorry. I feel like I've taken what happens at the ending a bit differently from everybody else, because I don't see it as he's putting all this away. For me, it just felt like he's going to stop using the Iron Man suit and technology as a crutch. Can, yeah, I think you can take it that way, yeah. And if that's the direction it's used to go in, I think that would work as well. I think I didn't feel like he was going off to live a normal life. He's going off to... Well, he does pick up that little screwdriver, which hints that he might go and make something else. And he's got the two dummies. Yeah. And the, oh, yeah, the small screwdriver and the little hints at Extremis do suggest that he's... Again, that's... 
it could go either way. Really, it is up to uh, what whatever uh, Joss Whedon does with the Avengers too to really move this story onwards. And that's a little bit worrying because the whole point of the Avengers is it's an ensemble piece, not a look at Tony Stark piece. But yeah. that's I think he's he's now more in the mindset of how um, Bruce Banner is, who wants to just work and help people. Whereas yeah. with Bruce Banner, he doesn't have the opportunity because of his condition that everybody labels him with. I Whereas... love how you refer to the Hulk <laughs> as a condition. condition. No, that's how he... It's my dot, dot, dot condition. <laughs> that's how he refers to it when he's trying to be subtle about it. I don't have the, the guy. Like, patience, temperament. <laughs> I also think these uh, the films are also sort of playing this weird sort of catch-up with the comic books as well. Because mm-hmm. obviously we've got mm-hmm. a lot of years of history. So in the comic books... Banner, it, Banner's not in control of the Hulk, but the Hulk is not just what we saw in the Incredible Hulk movie. Mm. He isn't just the the brainless rage monster. He is more like what he is in the final scene of the Avengers. He is an incredibly strong, incredibly powerful and angry character, but he has control. And now they're bringing Tony Stark up to the point where he is sort of in the comic books where he is less of a knob, to be honest, and a bit more stronger minded. But you know, obviously the comic books have had quite a lot of time to get those characters yeah. to that point. So sometimes it does feel with the films that they're playing catch up. Big problem of Captain America was it felt like a lot of that second half of that film was rushed to get us to the point where Cap is in yeah. now in the present day. So we can do. You wanted Captain multiple present World War Two movies, didn't you? Well, no, but the point is a lot of what goes on in World War Two is part of what makes that character important and part of his personality important and yeah. why he is so different when he is in today. And just for the record, the Winter Soldier trailer was freaking awesome. It is totally in there. I, I think, I think uh, Captain America is in the best position of any of Marvel's characters right now because mm. he can do something different. Yeah. Like, Iron Man 3 kind of felt like it was treading on, you know, treading water. And I haven't seen 4-2 yet. It might be amazing, but there what is... What I've heard is it is very good, and it's a heck of a lot better than the first one, and I love the first one. Okay, well... Ooh, better than... See, I've seen mixed reviews, that some that say it's not as good as... One of them, and this is interesting, a double-edged sword to what you just said, Neil, said it doesn't leave any kind of personal stamp on the uh, film. The idea being, you don't like it when they put a personal stamp, other reviewers do. Yeah, it's an awkward one because you also get, you get, I admit you have this in comic books. Let's talk about Crazy Frank for a second. He likes to put his stamp on Batman a lot. Sorry, Josh, you were talking. Uh, What was the last thing I said? Uh, It was to do with Captain America. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I just, I haven't seen four yet, but from everything I've seen about it, it looks like they're kind of doing similar things they did, that they did with the first film. Yeah. Whereas Captain America, it's in modern day, which, doesn't He's sound like free of his original continuity. Yeah, and you can ha- like Captain America doesn't have a particularly interesting Rose gal- Gallery anyway, mm. but because they're linking him so much with Shield, it feels like they're. It feels the most thing- like Avengers Two. Actually, yeah, actually. yeah, and and the atmosphere of the trailer felt much more like a uh, espionage spry uh, spy spry thriller. He's also spry. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it felt like a yeah. It felt almost like a, a modern James Bond at points in that mm, trailer, mm. and I and I really appreciate that that with that film they're going. 
okay, let's do something completely different because that's the best way to keep the audience interested. Mm. And they had the opportunity to do that here with Iron Man 3. And I think all the marketing for Iron Man 3 led many of us uh, mm-hmm. to believe that that's exactly what they were gonna, going to do, but they didn't. The, Kevin the Feige end- actually came uh, out and said, whoa, 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 everyone's saying this is going to be like a dark, serious film like The Dark Knight. It's not. And he was right. It really wasn't. It was a fun little knockabout. And if they'd said that in the trailers, maybe a lot of people wouldn't have gone, you sold us something different! It might have been a little bit better if it had been a little bit darker in places. Mm. I think if it it seemed like Tony was going to lose a lot more than he ended up losing, which was not much at all. Well, he didn't lose anything apart from his house. Well, it, well, it felt like from the trailers they were heavily suggesting that Pepper was going to die. Like I felt like all the way through those, uh, all, all the way through those marketing uh, videos, that it was like they they really are focusing on Pepper being in danger a lot in these uh, yeah. videos, and I felt, oh god, they're going to kill her. Which you know, it, which is sad, but from a narrative perspective, is brilliant because it pushes the character of Tony forward. But they didn't do anything like that. Um, they just kept everything the way it was but that's the thing Tony's winding down and closing up shop and that's why the end of that film felt sort of sort of right that was your lot they even give you a montage of all the Iron Man films and go wasn't it fun see you later and um, and yet Captain America's only just starting really he's only just taking his steps out into the, the wider world they're out of step with each other which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it means it's, it's got a kind of a circle of life feel to it. I also think perhaps it's just a, a movie telling problem. Sometimes it is a race to get back to the start. Yeah. Which you kind of don't want. You want these characters to grow. You could do a lot with Tony. And this is why it's always bugged me that they've kind of kept away from the demon in the bottle storyline. Which could be quite interesting, but they yeah. might feel it's too dark now because that character is quite light. Well, the, they've they've kind of positioned the Marvel movies as family experiences, yeah, so yeah. I don't know how they can really put that in and not, well, you know, go into fifteen territory with that kind of game uh, R-rated, game yeah. R-rated film. Yeah, well, uh, no, Kevin Feige did actually go on record and say that uh, Iron Man Two is closest you're going to get that little breakdown that Tony that little that proper and warranted breakdown that Tony has throughout that movie. Tony, okay. I was just going to say I don't think you have to stray close to a fifteen. I think if you get a good writer and written well, you could get away with doing that. Oh, a- absolutely, but I, I just don't think Marvel would even risk it. Yeah. No, I can agree with that, yeah. Well, yeah, they've said they're not going to, which is... I don't know, it, it feels kind of like we're, we're, we're all excited still about what Iron Man's going to do, but the, what you said, Neil, I don't think there's going to ever be another Iron Man 4. It kind of feels like that right now, doesn't it? Mm. It kind of like, well, that was it. Did you enjoy it? Let's hope there's more in, a bit more in Avengers 2, but they might just straight out kill Tony in that one. Let's face it. He might actually give everything. And knowing Joss Whedon, that is <coughs> yeah. completely to fair, lightly. To be fair, he didn't want to kill Coulson. And they didn't. <laughs> That's why he's going to kill Tony, because he didn't kill Coulson. Yeah. <laughs> he needs to kill someone, damn it. <laughs> Joss Whedon needs the blood <laughs> of interesting characters. There's a sacrificial ceremony that takes place. He'll nourish me. He'll grow hair back again. Why do you think people love him so much? 
2016 rolls around, he'll be walking around with a full head of hair. This next piece I put together after having a very vivid dream about this exact scenario taking place and waking up laughing. Does everybody remember Justin Hammer, Sam Rockwell from Iron Man 2? Well? Tony, hey. Hey, Justin. Thanks for meeting with me. Yeah, my least favorite person. Let me just say on behalf of the entirety of New York City, that was a solid we owe you. Mm-hmm. In fact, we owe the entire team. In fact, the entire world loves you right now. And you know what? I got Earth's mightiest marketing team behind me right now. Had a few words with your buddy Thor. Mm, what? We made this last week. Check it I'm out. I'm on a journey. You make that journey special. Oh, dear God. The world tree grows. And you are sitting right on top of it. Any great chicks are gonna love this one. My hammer is rising. Yikes. Every dream is a poem waiting to be kissed into a magic. Chanel number five. How about that? He says 41 words, he gets paid seven million dollars. Insipid. Yeah, okay, I would pay seven million dollars if you would never show me that one again. Okay, I get it. Not your style, plus you're rich anyway. Been talking to the people at Audi. Iron Man transforming car. That doesn't really make sense. I don't even transform. Natasha, baby cakes. Can I call you baby cakes? No. We've been talking to Victoria's Secret. The visual genius is there. Put together this picture to give you an idea of what it would look like with your body in their lingerie. Wait a minute. How did you get this? Oh, you know, don't sweat it. That's not your body. They just took your head and put it on another model's body. This is a violation of trust. You don't even need to take your clothes off. We can just use this image if we want. If you want. I could kill you with an eyelash. Clint, buddy, 2012, year of the bow. Mainly thanks to you. We've been thinking about getting you an upgrade. I'm on the phone right now to musket manufacturers. We're bringing it back. You're the poster child. Just say the word. This is your matter of national security. Okay, just putting this one out there. The Hawk iPhone. No, Jesus, no. Pepper, Pepper Potts. Justin. CEO of Stark Enterprises, Iron Man's main squeeze. When he's squeezing her, what's she drinking? Dr. Pepper, go. Weren't you arrested and taken into federal custody? Nicky, Nick, the big N. Okay, kids, they love the eye patch. They're wearing them out in the street. The trouble is, their depth perception is going straight to hell. Would you consider a monocle? Get this motherfucker off my helicarrier. Stanley, Stanley, how's it hanging? Hollywood called, they want you to now appear in every movie. Excelsior! Okay, that's what I'm talking about. So if you need an agent... I don't, at all. How did you get into my office? Steve, Cap, can I call you Cap? No, you may not. You are a big, huge, major hit with the over-80s. Uh... Good. Country Kitchen, Old Spice, Werther's Originals. Okay, I'm done here. What, too German? Okay, Dr. Banner. I'm gonna say two words. Hulk Burgers. I don't think I'm really prepared to do that. They're supersizing the Happy Meal, they're hulking out, the kids will love it, green meat. I'm not feeling comfortable with this, I think we're done here. Banner, just give me a few more minutes of your time. A few more minutes? Okay, how about this? Oh, Jesus, oh my God. Yeah, where's your chair now? 
Okay, let me just uh, take this away from you here. And uh, the Iron Man watch, Mm, the Iron Man whiskey. Not going to touch that one. Because these are private. Obadiah stain remover. Come on. Um, Yeah, it was just an idea. Classy, classy move. Trevor Slattery, my main Mandarin. Justin Hammer, as I live and breathe. Let me tell you something, baby. People are loving your character. We're talking a Gatorade. Yes. New hot British Mandarin flavor. Yes. New line of Calvin Klein bathrobes. Ooh, loving it. New phone with exactly ten rings. I will do. Anything you say. That's what I'm talking about. That's why I love this guy. Um, and I, I did mention before the whole power levels thing. They explain it away in the uh, commentary by going, well, you know, Tony Stark's boaster power suits with the arc reactor. Well, the Mark 42 takes more power than that. More power than that? They explain where we're going, I don't know exactly how it works. Uh, remember when Rhodey stole the suit in two? He shouldn't have been able to do that. Why is Tony putting all these art reactors into the Iron Man suits? And they're absolutely right. And I don't know if I mentioned it back when I did Iron Man 2. None of the Iron Man suits should have their own power source. That's what Tony's art reactor is there for. So Rhodey shouldn't have been able to steal the Mark II. Yeah, but also they're right. The guys who made the story went, yeah, we don't know how it works. It's your damn story! Exactly! Work it out for yourself. Make everything make sense. Make everything have a reason. Don't put anything in just because it's cool. Say you have Tony go, look, I put all these power sources in there just on the off chance that I might need to give them to someone else. Wink, wink, Rhodey. Or just, I put, just sort of saying to Rhodey, I put this art reactor in the Mark II. Just so you know. And then walking away and leaving Rhodey going, next time, baby, next time. See, that's the whole issue with the way they did War Machine, because War Machine, like, wasn't it originally actually designed for roads? Yeah. But well, the other is- thing is, yeah, you know, he was originally designed for roads. But the bit where T- Tony recharges himself with a car battery reminded me of that ridiculous moment that I talked about in, about the, in the animated with, series. With the Walkman in the animated series. I was like, that's ridiculous. He'd never do that. And then they fucking do it in Iron Man 3 with so- a power source so pathetic. Look, at the point when he blows a hole through Savin, that takes an enormous amount of power. That's because there's an arc reactor in that thing. Uh, Yep. So, yeah, they didn't really know or understand the arc reactor thing, and they hope that we won't ask these questions. That bothers me, because those are the questions I ask. You see, that's what bothers me there is, that's the old-school attitude towards comic book films. Uh, it's for kids. Who cares? Fuck yeah, we who don't. Cares. We we don't need to, you know, think this through properly. It's it's just a fun action sequence. Works for Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anybody notice that Tony's wearing an AIM T-shirt for the end sequence? No. He is. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to why? Because it's good. Uh, it was all he could find lying around? It was all he could find in Savin's car that he took when he was back in Tennessee. Before he finds out that Savin is working for AIM. Wouldn't the t-shirt be a giveaway? Yes, wait, and wait. he's genius. Wait, why does AIM have t-shirts? Well, you know, I, well, at the beginning, I, I, Killian actually has one made, like an IBM looking one. So I suppose it was just the, the newest version. But uh, it does kind of give them away, don't you think? And... Isn't he's forget it? 
Basically, um, uh, it's not made clear that he that the car he's taking when he's talking to uh, uh, Harley is Savin's car because they yeah. make a big deal out of it, but it is. And um, the clothes that he's wearing are Savin's clothes later on. And so, basically, he puts on the AIM t-shirt, goes and finds out about AIM and goes, Whoa, AIM! And then he goes and does all that stuff in Miami after driving 800 miles. But they hoped that no one would notice because they took that bit out of the film and then they, they added the whole beauty pageant thing and it was something to do with that he was supposed to tear gas the beauty pageant and they took that out as well. This whole film is dotted with little ragged edges where they tore bits out. Hmm. Yeah. The uh, vice president, dude from Robocop, yep. pasted in. He was never in there to begin with. All of that <laughs> stuff... That was just to explain the ways how uh, how AIM got in, into the uh, the government that, side. When you actually look at it, yeah, that makes sense because you never see him with the president. You, um, when you see him shaking I think AIM picture, him. it's a photograph. It's it's uh, he's in. I think he does meet the president once, and there's uh, there's a few sort of very very inexpensive scenes sort of done in reshoots. But that was an after the after the film was wrapped. A lot of the film also depended on the fact that Danny Jr. had received an injury. They had to reshape the action sequences as that for that. And obviously understandable. I don't want Robert Downey Jr. to get hurt. I don't want him to stub his little pinky. I never want that man to, to in any way undergo more duress than he needs to. And I would never ask anyone to do that. At the same time, there's a certain amount of lameness involved in most of the uh, uh, the odd cuts, especially the ones that involve, let's hope nobody asks too much about these. Mm. Maya was supposed to give Tony the codes to unlock Extremis. That's why, at the end, it's supposed to be a little tick, tick, tick. Guess what we're talking about here? It, that basically, after Killian shoots her, she crawls over to um, the, her computer, gives him the codes... And then blows herself up. But she also does a little talk about how um, she had basically had started out with the best of intentions. And uh, it humanizes her character. And Rebecca Hall did really, really well. And they just cut her out the movie. Because too complicated. No one gives a shit about Maya. Move on. <sighs> Here's some questions. <laughs> Sorry about this, guys. Why did nobody in the American military, after he disappeared for hours on end with no word, ask, Where's Rhodey? He gets downed in that sweatshop and then disappears for hours and then just sort of turns up next to Air Force One and they go, oh, thank God he's here. You haven't spoken to us for ages. Oh, he just walked straight past me and wouldn't talk. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and assume everything's going to plan then, shall I? Not even going to ask you to open the visor, just to make sure it's you. Just, you know. hey, roadie, because no one else could get in there. There's nothing dodgy going on here. So, Especially because he doesn't, you know, talk. Yeah. Uh, I, just let him on to uh, Air Force One. The most secure plane in the world they won't let you even through Heathrow if you've got a letter opener but hey if you want sorry I am Patriot I am Patriot this is so much better no it's not <laughs> I do like that little bit of banter going on here I feel like I'm being really critical on this well most of the banter going through is great fun that's the funny thing it, I think it's the story isn't great mm. but you've still got the elements of Iron Man in there the banter between the characters is is just still golden yeah Rebecca Hall took to that really well. Her delivery is extremely natural, and uh, and yeah, it was, I just wish that that scene. Apparently, the scene where they're at the uh, house arguing before it gets attacked was nine minutes long originally, but they cut it to move it forwards. But I would have loved a bit more banter there. Well, that's what DVD, that's what Blu-ray extras are for. Sure. It's not on them. Boo! Josh, carry on. It, it does feel like 
just hearing you guys talk about the film, it does feel like Shane Black kind of just concentrated on his one major strength in this film, which is dialogue. And in a film like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, focusing mainly on dialogue works because that is a film about characters interacting with each other and having all these crazy uh, little events happen. It doesn't work with Iron Man. Well... It does. It kind of works in Iron Man, but it's all but a it magic doesn't... trick. If you yeah, dig it... any deeper, you go, "Wait a second! Yeah, exactly. This woman's legs are up inside the box." You need more than that, and I felt like the first film had more than that, yeah. um, and I f- the Avengers definitely had more than that. Um, Iron Man Three is just a bunch of really well written characters in a not so well written story. It's supposed to be a piece of a grand Marvel tapestry. But it seems more like a sticker. It's glittery and great fun, and it's super embossed, but it's not carefully woven. Um, Andy Rodriguez asked, where was Nick Fury? Or Captain America? Or Black Widow? Or Hawkeye? And I thought, well, you know, it's just a little thing. The president was kidnapped. Okay, yeah. you got me there. And nobody yeah. showed up. Seriously? Not one motherfucker from S.H.I.E.L.D.? No one! And you could say, ah, oh, well, it's an Iron Man film, but look at the Captain America trailer. All of those people from S.H.I.E.L.D. are in that film. Look at so- Iron Man 2, full of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. <sighs> I missed Agent Coulson. I really, really did. So the Hello yeah, Carrier broke down. In all seriousness, that there is... No- you know at the end when all the Iron Man suits turn up? Why wasn't it S.H.I.E.L.D.? <laughs> yeah. Uh- because I mean, I know, I know it's a sort of a fly around, jumpy around Iron Man suit thing, but uh, yeah, well, some shield, something, well, just something to show that there are repercussions for kidnapping and holding, like holding between chains, President William Sadler. God, this film seems more and more ridiculous the more I think it about it. But at the same time, it's kind of, it's unabashedly ridiculous. They, they just. They, <laughs> As I said, it that they're expecting people not to dig too deep into it, and we're we're the ones who are going against the grain. Everyone else was like, "It's lovely," except for everyone who's mentioned this on Gonzo Planet. And I applaud you, all of you guys, for questioning and digging deeper and saying, "Wait a second. And it's it's not like we can't have fun with like a relatively cheesy story. Look at Thor; it is kind of a story yeah. that you've seen before, but it's the ride that is fun. Mm-hmm. But it's, we're still having fun with the ride here, but. The story is weakness because the fun we have is with, like, Robert Downey Jr. just being Tony Stark. Well, well, the word you're looking for is consistent. Four was consistent. Every part of that film fitted together. Whereas Iron Man 3 feels like all these different parts that are mushed together with sellotape and gaffer tape and gum. And um, and, and, and why you think, wow, that this piece here is really great. I really like this piece. But the whole is just still a thing glued together with various So you're basically items. saying that if you tapped it relatively just firmly it would like the Mark 42 suit does four times fall apart. Yeah, basically, yeah. And it's never. Do you know what the Mark 42 suit never does? Stay together when it's required. Yeah, yeah. Bothered me. But Where's not the- so much that I'm like, make them change this film. I shall disavow this film. It's my least favorite of the seven films in the official Avengers canon so far. Um, uh, but that's not saying it's shit. Uh, just that it's it's weak it's it's weak because 
there isn't that pageantry. I'm just wondering. Respect, if, maybe. I I just wonder with the Iron Man films in general, is it the fact that Robert Downey Jr. and that sort of banter-driven mm. dialogue that he does overshadows the character somewhat? So that's where the problems come in. One thing I wish is that John Favreau had been allowed to close this one out. He would have done a better job, and we know it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He had a better I mean, handle on the story and, and the, the direction the character was going. Even though Iron Man 2 was definitely weak in many, many places, I actually think that Iron Man 2 was a stronger story about Tony Stark. I think, but I think the problems with Iron Man 2 weren't John's fault. Yeah. Like, it did feel like it was the higher ups pressuring him to put all. <laughs> it has an enormous box full of stuff. This all has to be in the movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can, can we see do it in a donut shop. Yeah. <laughs> and you can you you know watch Iron Man one. That is a film with lots of comedy, lots of laughs, but has darker elements. Mm. You know, and Tony goes through an arc in Iron Man one. He doesn't go through an arc in two, and he definitely doesn't. I don't. Well, he sort of goes through he an arc. Kind of does. He, he, they experiment with him having an arc and then drop it halfway he through. He does have an arc in two in that he's going from despair to being able to realise that he has a connection to his past. That is important. Yeah. But um, in this he goes from being afraid to being no longer afraid. Which is huge. It's just that they don't really make... The, at what point anybody... Does he stop with the PTSD? Yeah. At what point does he go, you know what? I can live through this. I'm over this. There's never any significant moment. I, I know the last time when he sort of sits, sits down by the car and he's hyperventilating. And then the kid says, you're an engineer. Build something. And that apparently appears to be all he needs. Which is what he was uh, doing before to hide from it. So it's... They literally swept it underneath the yeah. rug, to be honest. If you want to look at it symbolically, the one who pulled him out of his funk in Iron Man 2, because remember, he was really down, and it's then where he goes, do, 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 straight afterwards, and he starts going to engineering class again, uh, is his father. And Harley is, in effect, his son. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of, he goes from being the son to the father. Obviously, this is requiring a symbolism that wasn't inherent in the script. They didn't care about this sort of stuff. It's just things happening. Uh, it's um, also weird what they do with Stark's dad. They, they flip around his dad a lot because... He's been he, like, three actors but, already. Yeah, <laughs> they've painted him out so many different ways and then they keep changing their mind every time he comes back again. <laughs> Next time Mark Ruffalo will be Tony's dad. Yeah, I'm, I'm him now as well. Nah, it's just going to turn out they're brothers or something. Nice. Ooh. It's not going to happen. That's not the worst idea in the world, Jerome, actually. <laughs> I know it sounds cliched, but uh, there is that's a good idea. No, 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 you, you've got to have the Banner Stark bromance. That is kind of cool. I miss it. <laughs> I, the thing I'm most looking forward to in Avengers 2 is more of those two actors in the same scenes yeah. together yeah. because, uh, the, you know, the Avengers is great throughout, uh, but um, those scenes were highlights for me. Just the, the dialogue was really strong and those two characters worked really well together. Yeah. So I, I'm almost... I wonder if Iron Man 3 would have been improved with the presence of our it, green little giants. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember, 
they've literally flipped Tony's and Bruce's relationship from the comics because throughout the comics they've it's always been like Iron Man never trusts Hulk that's why so many bad things happen to Hulk that's why mm. Bruce hates Tony because he he's always given him the worst benefit of the doubt yeah but now they switch it so oh Tony totally understands this guy he wants the I, benefit of the doubt and Tony doubts his benefit ah uh, yeah. The thing is, they even end the Avengers yeah. with those two driving off into the sunset. So it's almost a wasted opportunity. Just like, why why not have Tony Stark try and help Banner be cured of his condition or whatever? That well, would be an interesting storyline. Yeah. Something like that. See, that's a, it's the reason why they've made the whole premise of the movie is that he's explaining everything to Bruce. Like, this is him telling... Yeah, but you shouldn't have to be explaining everything to Bruce, because Bruce should be there. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's a part of that universe, an important part of that universe. There's no reason for him not to be there. See, this this is just me putting my own spin on things. It's probably not not how it is, but... Oh, I I know. I, I, I feel like Bruce asked him the simple question of why... Like... Why are you here in my office? How come you're out flying around in your suit or something? It caused him to go into this huge, long story that Bruce had no interest in knowing. And nodded off during it. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, now that you mentioned it, uh, Josh, and, and knowing that we have a very limited amount of screen time for those two actors again, I kind of really do wish that Iron Man 3 had actually had a significant presence of um, Banner in it. Because obviously, you know, since Marvel aren't going to give him his own movie, but clearly these two work really, really well together, I would have sacrificed absolutely everything in Iron Man 3 for that. Yeah. Hey, I'd just like a team-up movie that is Iron Man and Hulk. That could be fun. Yeah. They should have just made Iron Man 3 a Hulk movie. Mm. Well, no, just... <laughs> you've, the thing is... Well, I kind of agree with you, actually, in that... Like, Iron Man has gone through a lot of stories, whereas the Hulk has it's kind that, of had a... We, do, we don't know what is... They, we don't know which movie to take as what's happened before, because it's sort of... The well, previous one is sort of what happened. I think, like, people have different opinions on the Hulk movies, but mm-hmm. I think everyone can agree that the Avengers Hulk is by far the, the best. best. Mm-hmm. This was a an opportunity to flesh out that version of the Hulk even more and have Tony be a, a you know, a a big player in that story. But because he's already had stories that focus on him quite a lot, you could have the Hulk be the the main character and have Tony be a supporting character. And it would still work. It would still be great. Um, you remember the, the, um, the series uh, Earth's Majesty's Heroes I do There's yeah. a, the, there was a scene that always stood out really well to me in there that I really liked which was I think it was Tony Stark's in the kitchen of the Avengers Manor saying something about he's really not this scientist spiel to the Hulk and he goes oh I'm sorry you probably don't get that and the Hulk just reels off the answer yes and I want that Hulk that's the Hulk I want that's got grumpy but smart <coughs> yes uh, that's the one. you know I, I know it's sort of like I've just Try to enforce this Hulk tangent, but I have this weird theory of where Hulk is going to go in Phase Three. Mm-hmm. Well, I want him to go in Phase Three, which is Planet Hulk, Planet, Planet Hulk, Hulk. <laughs> like, like because Thanos is going to be the main enemy for Avengers Three. Yeah, making oh. things that big a scale, it could make sense that Planet Hulk could happen. Well, yeah, you got Guardians of the Galaxy helping to set that up as well. And grumpy but smart Hulk actually uh, is is great with the kids because 
kids kids are less scared of him because he's less absolutely enraged but he can still smash which is what the kids love and you can sort of give him a a very dry wit and interesting Mm. sense of humour which is what I think they did in in the Avengers cartoon series he actually had sort of a nice little twisted sense of humour to it yeah he was literally like when when a bomb was going to go off he says everybody will be dead well I'll survive but, and, and that and that contrasts wonderfully with Tony's sense of humour, which is really wacky and uh, all over the place. Just to have that character who says the one line that makes everyone laugh. Yeah, no, that works. Isn't it interesting? We're talking about the most interesting Marvel character, and it's kind of like we're done with him on his own. Like, like what you were saying, Neil, about there's probably not going to be an Iron Man four. Maybe there won't. In in terms of. What DC are now doing with Batman is now, rather than doing Batman films, he'll just be in everyone's films. So well, there'll never be a just Superman. Yeah. They can turn him into new Nick Fury. But, like, there'll never be just Superman anymore, and there'll always be Batman to keep people coming back to it. So why not, in the future, when with the characters who've pretty much had their arcs done, and we've already established that Iron Man just did the same three movies of like I'm up against shadowy versions of me the arms dealing uh, industry to have them actually now that we've had the Avengers just crank it up a notch just start throwing your characters and your heroes in together that's when they bounce off each other the best yeah I I think that also you're playing to the strengths there of the character we know that the character's sort of wit and the banter that he can perform is a really good strong point of that character it's the strongest point of the films it's the strongest point of the character so if you can give him someone that he can bounce off or someone that can bounce off him mm. you're suddenly going to get a very different and suddenly very interesting movie each movie will become like a cocktail rather than just a straight shot mm. yeah absolutely Ooh. the trouble is you, you're sort of missing out on they can't do two characters that I think would re- work really well because I'd love to see Spider-Man in there the Spider-Man yeah. we have now from the Mark Webb stuff, who does quip, who has that sense of humour. Spider-Man Wolverine would be a great team-up. That, that is the that one is a, team That is quite I a wanted. constant one. Yeah. They, they love doing that one because, though, for some reason, those two characters clicked and work really well together. Yeah. Whether it's in the original 90s car, uh, cartoons or whether it's in the later ones, they always seem to have worked quite well. Anyway, we seem to have strayed somewhat, which is Sorry. ironic since that's what Iron Man 3 uh, did. <laughs> so basically, we've pulled a Die Hard 2 again. Indeed. I mean, uh, yeah, ultimately, the same as with Die Hard 2, the same as with Ghostbusters 2. The film is not offensively bad at all. It's it's good, it ticks along. It is not a worthy follow-up to the original Iron Man, and you could say the same about Iron Man 2. It's also not a worthy follow-up to the Avengers. But I can't angry at it, especially not with the uh, newly conceived possibility of Extremis, which I'll just mention here uh, is um, in the comic it's it's a very future facing um, story written by mad genius Warren Ellis and the whole idea is that um, the Maya and Killian relationship is still there although Killian kills himself immediately uh, and she uh, she allows to be released into uh, the the criminal element uh, a test of extremis 
and a uh, domestic terrorist gets hold of it and becomes this horrendous killing machine who grows new organs and, beca- and breathes fire and becomes this sort of super powerful man. Yeah, somewhere between Blonsky and uh, Savin in this. Uh, Stark goes to try to uh, take him down with his regular armor on and gets completely fucked up. He breaks his legs and fingers and smashes him to pieces, throws a car on him and then walks away. And uh, Tony says to Maya, without knowing that she's the one who uh, released the uh, extremist, you've got to give me this stuff because I need to... I I couldn't control the Iron Man suit with absolute, complete and utter fusion with the electronics. I I need this to step myself up. She says it might kill him, but he says it's a risk he's willing to take. He gets injected with Extremis, he goes into a cocoon, and then when he comes out, he is able to telepathically link with machinery and use it, basically floats the new Iron Man, lightweight Iron Man armor onto his body, which is now sheathed in a uh, telekinetic sort of a metal coating. So basically, he becomes like a really, really, really good Iron Man. <laughs> And that was how he evolved in the comics, and that was years ago. So I believe what they're implying at the end is that when Tony said, I've come out of my cocoon, that extremists could be the key to uh, Stark going forwards, whether it's Robert Downey Jr. or another actor. But Iron Man, let's face it, ain't going anywhere if the Marvel Universe is going to continue. And I honestly don't think that they're going to reboot in the way that they did with, say, Spider-Man. Uh, I think they're actually going to just... It would be easier to recast, simply because these movies have been so successful. The Bond way, shall we say. Yeah, I think it's it's more likely to hit Bond levels. I mean, if you think about it, we're already on, what, seven? Oh, fuck, Diamonds are forever, so we're doing way better. Yeah, we are, yeah. Yeah. This was basically the point where the Bond franchise really just needed to be shot in the head, but it somehow came back with Roger Moore. So Yeah, and, and let's face it, Marvel's still got more of their shit together than DC. Oh yeah, they absolutely do. Oh, one more thing. I do really love that bit where Tony Stark says, it's Christmas Eve, take him to church. It's just pure class. Also, I will say, if you like the sound of Extremis, consider the motion comic, which can be had on DVD. It costs less than a fiver, even for the import, and in many ways is a better story and a better Iron Man story than this movie. It's nasty and it doesn't have the heart, but it does have vision. It is a story for futurists. Stark voice log. Record. Date stamp. John Pillinger says the Iron Man suit is a military application. I told him he was wrong. I'm trying to decide if I was lying. It's used for extraordinary rescue and response situations. Hard to believe I used to be able to fit this into a briefcase. That landmine put shrapnel two centimeters from my heart. My every movement allowed it to inch closer. I had to design a system to hold the shrapnel where it was, and incorporate it into a self-defense solution to get me out of captivity. I got home and put my money into a suit that'd keep me alive. I spent years in various versions of this breastplate, holding the shrapnel in magnetic fields, until medical science caught up with me, and I could get the damn thing out. But I kept the suit, kept tinkering with it, and I'm not sure why anymore. Except that maybe it wasn't about the future, but my future. I went from being a man trapped in an iron suit, to being a man freed by it.
Iron Man, Command System On. I'll tell you right now, I'm really looking forward to Thor. Yes. Same. Yeah. So uh, I will be back next week to talk about that. Any of you guys who are able to see Thor uh, in the next seven days, do the same. And uh, we shall reconvene and talk about that then. Fingers crossed. Hopefully I will be. Indeed. Okay. I love, I love me some Thor. And many, many thanks to everyone who contributed essay material for this podcast. If you have any similarly uh, strong thoughts on Thor, send those in. But I've, I've got a feeling that it's going to be somewhat less contentious. Okay. Probably. <laughs> so I would just like to thank my guests, Neil Taylor and Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. No worries. Thank you very much. And Josh Regarity of Kane and Rinse. Thank you very much for having me. And we will be back in a week's time. Avengers Assemble. Avengers <laughs> Assemble.